You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. Great to have you. Uh, we're in a series in the book of 1 Corinthians. And so if you have a Bible, I invite you to take it out. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, just a great letter. Lots of stuff going on. And we're going to be uh, walking through some things that I think will challenge us. Kind of building on last week. But before we do anything else, let me, let me press pause and pray uh, for us all. Uh, In Psalm 119, the psalmist David writes, Your testimonies, Lord, are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me, turn to us, Lord, and be gracious to us this morning, as is your way with those who love your name. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Uh, Last week, if you were here, we began addressing a big, just a big topic in 1 Corinthians. It's a big topic in the New Testament, but it takes up several chapters in 1 Corinthians, and that is the topic of Christian liberty. What is Christian liberty? Well, it depends on what you're talking about in terms of the different elements of it, because the New Testament talks about various aspects of Christian liberty. There is the liberty that we have from the penalty of sin uh, by way of the work of Jesus who paid our ransom. So there's that form of Christian liberty. Then there is the Christian liberty that takes over and has set us free from the the power of sin uh, uh, in our lives now, but also in the resurrection of our bodies as we've walked through chapter 15 talking about. But in Romans 6 verse 18, we read, we have been set free from sin, so liberated, and have become slaves of righteousness. We also, in addition to those two aspects of liberty, we also have liberty from the Old Testament law of Moses, which exposes sin. That's what law does, the law does, but it doesn't free us from the penalty of sin. And what Paul writes in in Romans 6, 14 this time is, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law. So the law doesn't grant us liberty, but we're no longer under the law, but under grace. So... There's that aspect of liberty, Christian liberty, but as it relates to this morning and as we build upon last week, there is the liberty that we have to participate in things not expressly forbidden in the Bible, but there's a danger with this. And that danger is that this aspect of Christian liberty, um, using this freedom can cause others to stumble. It could be an offense to them if we participate in things that they struggle with, have concerns about, don't have the freedom to participate like we do. So there's that aspect of Christian liberty too. A verse that seems to strike a helpful balance of Christian liberty is found in Galatians 5 where Paul writes, for you were called to freedom, brothers, sisters. Keep this verse in mind. I'm going to 
come back to it later in our time together, but you were called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Last Sunday, if you were here, Ezra walked us through chapter 8, where the topic of Christian liberty was focused on eating meat offered to idols. Now, have you ever asked why that was a big deal? Meaning, why, why was this a topic that comes up again and again? In fact, the church council, the very first church council in Acts chapter 15, dealt with this topic along with circumcision. So eating meat that had been offered to idols was a common occurrence. This was a common topic. But why? Well, let me give you the reasons why. Almost all Middle Eastern religions at the time of Christ and leading up to the time of Christ and thereafter, continuing some today, had some form of meat sacrifices, including Judaism. You can read about that in the book of Leviticus, the first eight chapters, and also chapters 16 and 17, if, if you like. But most often, when the meat was offered, not all of the meat from the animal was sacrificed. So some was, some wasn't, and that which wasn't was often sold in temple markets with the proceeds from the sales going to the priest. Great for the priest. And the reason why you would want to buy it, this leftover meat, is not only to support the priest, although you probably did, but more importantly, it was believed that you became closer with the gods if you ate the same animal sacrifice to them. So it's a win-win. It's great for the priest. He makes a buck, but it's a win for you as well because you get closer by eating the meat with the gods that you worship. You can see why this was a major issue in the church in Corinth. And they were not alone. This wasn't simply about going by M&M's meats, Right? getting some brisket and going home and having a barbecue. This is about participating with the gods, which we can assume had been the case for many of the Corinthians. Temple participation was huge with the temple of Epaphrodite in the city, not only a place of worship, but essentially their community center. Temple prostitution was rampant Paul talked about that back in chapter 6 with thousands of temple prostitutes serving as supposed surrogates of Epaphrodite. So again, that too was an act not simply of, 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 of having sex with someone, but it was like eating meat offered to idols. It was participation with the gods. And if you lived in Corinth, you most likely participated in at least some of these activities. But what about now? What if you come to Jesus and you still live in the city of Corinth? How then should you live? After all, meat is meat, right? Remember last week? Meat's meat. Idols are not gods. They're just wood and stone and so forth. So can you still participate? Even if you're a Christian, because you're free in Christ. You're under grace you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, and where the Spirit is, there is freedom. 
Well, last Sunday, Ezra addressed the topic with us. And what he did last Sunday was he gave us some guidelines and he gave us some implications for us today because this isn't an issue for us today. We don't go down to Granville Island, walk through the market and see a sign that said, this meat has been part of an idol sacrifice. That's not an issue for us. So he gave us practical applications, implications, and so on for us today. I'll do that again. And we're going to do that for the next couple of weeks because this is, like I said, a big topic and Paul's not done with it. So to our text, 1 Corinthians 9. But before I open up and start reading it with you, there's an issue that you and I need to know about as we enter chapter 9. Uh, that is the motivation for why Paul writes chapter 9. And that is Paul wasn't receiving compensation from the Corinthians for his ministry. He took no salary, as it were, from the Corinthians. Why? Well, because he refused it. He refused to be compensated for his ministry, and this drove the Corinthians crazy. And they saw it, in fact, as a reason to question Paul's apostleship. Now, why did it bother them? Well, a couple of reasons why. One, as I said when we introduced this whole series way back in the day, the Corinthians were all about glitz and glamour, and their leaders needed to look the part. They needed to act the part. They needed to live the part. Paul had none of that. Add on top of that, Greeks viewed manual labor as beneath them. Manual labor was labor for the slaves, why? So they could enjoy their leisure, they could enjoy their sports, they could enjoy their dialogue over certain philosophies. But when Paul walks into Corinth, if you read the story back in Acts chapter 18, he hooks up with a couple named Priscilla and Aquila, and what they start doing is making tents to make a buck. He was a leather worker. Yuck to the Corinthians. An apostle, a supposed apostle of Jesus Christ is scratching out a living in our city making tents? So why didn't Paul take the money if it was an issue for them? I mean, it would have made things so much easier. I ask because he took money from other ministries, just not the Corinthians. He did the, uh, the same with the Thessalonians. Uh, listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11. You can read it behind me. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. They brought me cash. They took care of me. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. So Paul wasn't out and out against financial support, but it depended on the context, if he accepted or refused it or not. But again, why? Why did he do this with the Corinthians? Well, the foundational reason was because the Corinthians were being influenced and had been influenced by something Paul refers to as super apostles, who were no apostles at all yet had influenced them greatly, and other places as well, other ministries and so on. They were the ones that Paul was being compared to. But unlike Paul, they looked the part. They, they acted the part, they lived the part, but they were motivated by cash. And they were motivated by status 
and power more than anything else. And so Paul, what his desire was, was to remove any doubt of what his motives were. He sought to remove any doubt that he was motivated by cash and power and status, so he refused to be paid. Listen again to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11, a couple of verses earlier than, one, than the ones I just read. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles, even if I am unskilled in speaking. I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you, as I read earlier. So that's the context. You get it? That's the context for chapter 9. That's what's going on in this church. So what Paul does in chapter 9 is he responds to them by using himself as a an example of pro proper, Christian, proper use of Christian liberty by doing two things. Here's what he does in our text. He defends his right to receive support. That's number one. That's in verses 1 to 14. And second, he defends his right to refuse support in verses 15 to 23. That's our text. Really easy outline. So let's take them one at a time. First, his right to receive support. Support. He gives a handful of reasons why he has this right. The first is the certainty of his apostleship. Take a look, take a look at verses 1 to 6. A lot of questions, rhetorical questions, Paul asks in our text here. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, that's Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living. Just stop there. Let me paraphrase Paul in these verses. Paul is saying, I have this same freedom you do, Corinthians, and I love my freedom. Am I not free? He asks in verse 1. And I'm, I'm an apostle, and a couple of things testify to my apostleship. I'm certainly an apostle. One, I've seen the risen Lord, which was one of the necessary qualifications of a capital A apostle, as you can read about in Acts chapter 1, verse 22, and two, you, Corinthians, testify to my apostleship. He says they are the seal of his apostleship in the Lord in verse 2. They're his resume. They vindicated him. He says other people may doubt it, but you can't doubt it. I lived with you for 18 months. I planted the church there. I led many of you to Jesus there. I discipled you there. You're my seal. You're my resume. You, you can't doubt that. And therefore, because I am an apostle, don't I have the same rights as anyone else? Well, the answer is yes. Don't I have a right to at least have my meals paid for and a place to sleep? The answer to that is yes. 
Don't I have the same rights as Peter and others to get married and take my wife along with me? The answer to that is yes. Or is it only Barnabas and myself who have have to take another job to pay our way? The answer to that is no. Paul had the right. He had the resume. He was free. But he gave it up for something he loved more than his freedom and liberty. More on that in a bit. Second reason he gives for his right to be paid, worldly experience. Take a look at verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? The analogy is really simple in verse 7. A workman deserves his or her wages. Like a soldier, like a vine dresser, like a shepherd, a minister of the gospel provides a service, and like anyone else, they deserve to be paid for it. Paul's argument here is if this is true in the secular world, it is also true in the spiritual world. By the way, before we look at the next reason, I don't think these examples of soldier, vine dresser, and shepherd are random. For the Christian life is spiritual warfare, yes? And, and Jesus likens us to branches that have been grafted onto a vine that is Jesus. And we are a flock with Jesus being the shepherd, with, with leaders and ministers and, and the body here serving as under shepherds to the leadership of Jesus. And a faithful gospel minister, he will fight alongside of those he works with. He'll tend and he'll shepherd. A third reason, the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. Let's pick things up in verse eight and read halfway through verse 12. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, so he goes back to the Old Testament text, what we would call the Old Testament. Does not... For it is not, for, excuse me, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake. Because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not, do not we even more? Let me see if I can make sense of what Paul's argument is here. In, in verse 9, if you put your pretty eyes in verse 9, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4 there, where it says that we are to muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. What does that mean? Well, treading or threshing the grain is the process of removing the edible part of a sheaf of wheat, a stalk of wheat. <laughs> I think it's a stalk of wheat. All you farmers, you can correct me after. But it's, it's the removal of the edible part from the, from, of grain from the rest of the straw. Now you could do that by hand, arduous. It would take a long time. So a process over time was created where on a circular enclosure of hard ground, and you can, see the, you can see it behind me, oxen or sheep would move around and around and tread out the grain. That's what you see. Paul borrows from this. 
and says that the instruction was written for our sake, your sake, my sake, and builds a principle from it saying that if a person is working, he deserves to earn from the job he works. So don't muzzle an ox, meaning if the, if the ox is walking around, don't put something over its mouth so it can't eat. Let him eat while he works. It is only right that he enjoys some of the fruits of the harvest that he is treading. Two more reasons. Old Testament practice. Take a look at verse 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? Now, really quickly here, Paul is simply doing in verse 13... Um, what he's doing is pointing out that the priests and the Levites in the Old Testament temple practice and system lived off the sacrifices and the offerings that were brought to the temple. If the Old Testament ministers under the law were supported by the, by the people to whom they minister, Paul's argument is, should not God's servants who minister under grace be supported in the same way? The last reason, and he kept the best for last, and that is the teaching of Jesus. Verse 14, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim, proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, there's no New Testament written text at this point, so where is Paul getting this from? Well, it was probably passed down to him orally, but what Jesus says here and what Paul quotes here is recorded in places like Luke 10 and Matthew 10. Uh, and so it was passed on to Paul. Perhaps Jesus, when he gave him the revelation that we've talked about in the past, maybe he received it then. But whatever, and whatever the reason, that's Paul's argument, his fivefold argument. As an apostle, based on these reasons, I deserve to be paid for my ministry. Look at verse 12, halfway through. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Why does he do this? Well, we get part of an answer here, but I want to go deeper with you in discovering what his motive is, his greater motive are, are included in this, I should put it uh, that way, in this for declining payment. But before looking at that deeper with you, I, I want you to notice two of the most shocking verses in all of Paul's letters. Um, let me read verse 14 again, and I'll carry on into partway through verse 15. Paul writes again, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. What did the Lord do? He commanded this. Jesus commanded this. Verse 15, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. Shocking. The, the Lord commanded this, but I refused. Shocking. How, how do we deal with this? How do we deal with the fact that Paul said no to a command of the Lord? I think the following quote is helpful from the oldie and goldie Warren Wiersbe. 
He has since passed already. He's very old now. He writes this about what Paul's doing here in these verses. Paul did not have the right to give up his liberty in Christ. Let me say that again, because this is true of us as well. Paul did not have the right to give up his liberty in Christ. Why? Because we're called to freedom. The whole issue with the Galatian letter is the Galatians had given up, were attempting to give up their liberty in Christ. And Paul says, you're called to this. You have no right to give up your liberty in Christ. But he did have the liberty to give up the rights that were his. We are called to freedom. We have liberty. We have rights. And so what Paul is saying, in other words, is our Christian liberty allows us to say no to our rights. And one of the rights that were his, commanded by Jesus, no less, was the right to be paid. But in Christian liberty, he gave it up. Why? Two reasons. I'm going to give you one today and we're going to pick things up with the second next week. And the reason why I'm doing that is because I want to leave you with some more implications on how this fleshes out today um, and get very practical as I, as I do that. So the first reason he does this, and we've already gotten a sense from verse 12, is he did it for the sake of the gospel. Take a look at verses 15 to 18. Verses 15 to 18 are so rich and weighty, I I just pray that God allows me to teach this well to all of us. Um, So let's look at them. And let's lean in. Let's lean in. Put your phones down if you're checking something else out. All right? Paul writes, But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. That's an interesting statement. Chamber it. If I preach the gospel, no ground for boasting. Why? We'll come back to it. For necessity is laid upon me. We'll come back to how and who laid that necessity on Paul. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will... I have a reward, but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. Again, by who? Verse 18, what then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. There is so much here. First of all, let's get something out of the way. I'm going to work really hard for you. I want you to see this and taste this and just be moved by it. Uh, First, let's get this word boasting out of the way. Paul talks about boasting two times. We don't like the word boasting because we sort of tie it with arrogance and pride. That's not how it's being used here. It's being used as an expression of joy, not arrogance. Paul writes in verse 15 that he would rather die than have anyone deprive him of his ground for boasting. What was his ground for boasting? Preaching the gospel free of charge. Pay him for his preaching, and his boasting would be removed. But there's something more, again, that I desperately want you to see that will help us understand his motives even more. Paul writes, and hear me on this, Paul writes that it wasn't his will that he preached the gospel. Did you hear what I just said? 
Paul writes that it wasn't his will that he preached the gospel, but his preaching of the gospel comes by the necessity that was laid upon him. He had been entrusted with a stewardship. By who? By the Lord. To preach the gospel. And therefore, because he was entrusted with this stewardship by the Lord, woe to him if he doesn't preach the gospel. But to be very clear, he isn't saying that he didn't want to preach the gospel, but that his will had nothing to do with the call placed on him by Jesus. This is why he says in verse 16, put your eyes in verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. Why? Because Paul wants to boast. So why, why Paul? Because the gospel message wasn't his. It was the gospel of Jesus. It was the good news story of Jesus. He had nothing to do with the content of the gospel. And he isn't doing this because he chose to do it. He's doing it because he was called and he was compelled to do it. Remember how 1 Corinthians started, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle. So the gospel's not his. This call comes from outside of him. But if God called him to do it, then one more time, woe to him if he didn't. That's why Paul says in verse 17, for if I do this of my own will, I, I have a reward. But it wasn't his will. But God's. He was called by the will of God. He doesn't have a reward that merely comes from preaching the gospel. What then is his reward? That's why he asks the question starting in verse 18 that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge. That's his reward. Now, I just gave you a ton, right? And you're going, I, 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 you're right, you're just trying to, <laughs> thank you very much. So let me see if I can sum it up. I, I, I'm going to put a quote on the screen um, behind you. I don't know where this quote comes from. I just know it doesn't come from me. And it's good. This is how this individual, he or she, sums up what's going on here. With great happiness and satisfaction, Paul forsook a liberty. He refused to take advantage of a right in order to make a contribution of his very own in the work of Christ. Uh, because I'm not as smart as the one I just quoted... And because we don't have issues with meat offered to idols, and because most of you don't get paid in a ministry context, let me get practical and let me sum it up more simply when it comes to Christian liberty as we try to get our heads and hands wrapped around it. Here's how I would sum, sum it all up. Love limits Christian liberty. That's what love does. Love limits us, and it constrains us. That's what true love does. I am married to Nicole. I love her. But my love for her constrains me. It limits me. I can't do whatever I want when I want. I can't. I've got to check in. You know what I mean? She, she could follow me on my phone. I, I don't hand that out to everybody. She goes, Why, what are you doing up there? Uh, leave me alone. 
I have to squeegee. I've talked about that, right? I have to squeegee. <laughs> squeegee this morning. Hang my towels. I got to shave before kissing her. Brutal. But I do it. Happily. <laughs> because I love her. She's my lady. I limit my freedom. I give up certain liberties because of my love for her. Because that's what love does. Midtown, love took the nails that fastened our Savior to a tree. Anybody have claustrophobia here? You know what I mean? Somebody gets on you, holds you down, and you just go nuts. Like, you go nuts. You go crazy. Right? You can't move. Can you imagine being fastened to a tree by nails? <laughs> That's what love does. Limits freedom. That's what Jesus did for the sake of those he loved. Liberty gone, freedom gone, in the greatest sense, all the way to the grave. That's what love does. Love limits Christian liberty. Paul loved the gospel of Jesus. And he wanted nothing to get in its way or to sully it or call into question its beauty and power. And if displaying the beauty of the gospel meant that he took no compensation from the Corinthians, whom he also loved, then in joy he refused compensation. He didn't... See, here's the beauty of Paul. He didn't want to receive glory from the gospel. He wanted to glory in the gospel. He didn't want the gospel to make something about himself. He wanted to just point people to the gospel. So that's the reason why. That's why I say we need to go deeper with this. That's why he did it. You know, there are those that say that chapter 9 doesn't really fit the flow of coming out of chapter 8, um, where we were last week, should, because Paul starts talking about meat offered to idols in chapter 8, and then he finds that topic again in chapter 10. But here in chapter 9, he's talking about receiving compensation. And they, what some critics say is Paul lost his train of thought. He got distracted. Sometimes Paul seems to get distracted and go on rabbit trails. But with respect, I, I disagree with what Paul is, what they're saying Paul is doing here. See, what Paul, I believe, is saying to his readers, from my perspective, is that if I have every right to be paid, but for your sake, Corinthians, I've given that right up, then is it too much to ask you, for the sake of the weaker among you, to give up eating meat sacrificed to idols? For the sake of the weaker among you, so that the church can be built up, I think that's what he's doing here. And so for the sake of the gospel, Paul gives up his right to be paid. The second reason he gives is for the sake of the lost, which is seen in verses 19 to 23, and it's where we're going to pick up things next week. Um, but before I wrap up and building upon last week, I want to leave you with some principles, as I said earlier, regarding Christian liberty. You can wrestle with these personally or in your CGs this week. Um, the big question is, what is our meat offered to idols issue today? And usually, 
this aspect of Christian liberty and what are we free to do and not do is always couched in the question, is it okay to be a Christian and? Dot, 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 dot. And last week, Ezra gave us some examples that I agree with. Is it okay for a Christian to drink? Or should we not? Or only in certain places? Is it okay to drink if we are okay to drink? Drink anything and everything? Or only wine, as somebody has argued with me, because that's in the Bible? It's like that's a stretch of application. But today I would include cannabis. Cannabis is legal. And if you can go home at the end of the day and have a glass of Chardonnay, is it okay to go back at the end of the day and have an edible? Is that okay or not? It's legal. Are we free to do that? What's the difference? THC, bad. CBD, good. What's the difference? We got thoughts. Smoking, smoking's wrong, or is it okay? Any picture I've ever seen of C.S. Lewis, he's always got a pipe in his mouth. So is it or is it not? Tattoos, whoo, baby. I'm about the only preacher in this city that doesn't have a tattoo. Everybody's tatted up in this city who preaches, and they always wear short sleeve shirts when they preach. It's pretty... <laughs> It's like, that's interesting. It's cold and you're, you're wearing a short sleeve shirt again. That's really interesting, tattoo guy. But is it wrong or right to have tattoos? I mean, Leviticus 19.28 says it's wrong. Out and out says it. So what do we do with that? How do we deal with Leviticus today? A lot of times our resistance to tattoos is just wanting to let people know that skin, that that tattoo's on is going to get looser, baby. Right? Over time. That sun around your belly button is going to look like a Milky Way in 20 years. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Right. What about media? Can you watch Game of Thrones as a Christian? Got really quiet in here. Succession? Mad Men? Breaking Bad? Can you watch stuff that drops F-bombs all the time or has sex on screen all the time? Can you watch that? Is it okay? Do you have liberty to do that? These are wrestles today. How about dating? Big question I had when I was a youth pastor was always, Norm, I'm dating. How far can I go? How far can you go? How about Sabbath keeping? Not as big a deal today, but when I was growing up, man, you did not do anything on a Sunday. You did not cut the lawn on the Sunday. You, knew. you went to church in the morning. You went out for lunch. You went home. You had FOSPA, if you're a Mennonite. And then you went back to church. And you had to always leave, like, halfway through Wide World of Disney, and you were ticked. <laughs> how about money? How about purchases? How about we spend, how we spend our money? Tony Campolo, very popular back in the 80s, he out and out said that if you're a Christian, you can't own a Mercedes-Benz. Gambling. Is it okay to gamble? Go to Vegas? Throw the bones. Is that okay? How about clothing? Your modesty may not be my modesty. 
So what about clothing? What can you wear and what can't you wear? How about body enhancement? You know what I mean? Like, is it okay for a Christian to look like a housewife from Beverly Hills? Right? You guys aren't even sure you should laugh at that. But is it okay? Nip and tuck here, enhance there. Is that okay? These are our meat offered to idol situations today. Is it okay to be a Christian and? So let me give you some takeaways. And I'm going to be giving you more in the weeks ahead because as I've said already twice today, this is a big topic. I have been helped and shaped by a variety of people in my mindset when it comes to this topic, but one that has really been a, an encouragement to me is his writing, in his writing is Sinclair Ferguson, so I want to give a shout out to him. Um, let me give you five principles and then we'll respond. Principle number one, Christian liberty should never be flaunted. Romans 14, verse 22, whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. And I would include today our social media posts. Furthermore, you do not need to exercise your liberty in order to enjoy it. Two important questions. Does your liberty build up others? And is it really liberating you? Or has it actually begun to enslave you? Because the reality is Christians, the Christian who must exercise his or her liberty is in bondage to the very thing he or she insists on doing, oftentimes. They can say yes, they just can't say no. Paul writes, in Romans 14, verse 17, that, that if the kingdom exists for you as food and drink, then you really don't get the gospel. And you don't get the freedom that the Spirit brings. Principle number two, Christian liberty does not mean that you will welcome fellow Christians only when you have sorted out their views on whatever, whatever the issue is. So God, here's Paul's argument in Romans 14. God has welcomed them in Christ. That person you disagree with and they disagree with you, God has welcomed them in Christ as they are, so should we. Yes, it's true, the Lord will not leave them as they are, you and me either, by the way, but he does not make their pattern of conduct the basis of his welcome. Again, neither should we. I've had people leave this ministry over books that we sell in the cafe. They don't understand the gospel. Principle number three. Christian liberty should never be used in such a way that we become a stumbling block to another Christian. Jesus said it would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the ocean to cause a little one to stumble. We are given liberty in Christ in order to be servants of others, not to indulge our preferences. Fourth, two more. It is not hypocritical in certain situations to live one way with certain people and another way with others. We're going to be seeing this when we get to chapter 10 in a few weeks, but I'll give you a taste of what Paul writes in verses 27 and 28. If someone who isn't a believer asks you home for dinner, accept the invitation if you want to. Eat whatever is offered to you without raising questions of conscience. 
But suppose someone tells you, you know, this meat was offered to an idol. Don't eat it. Out of consideration for the conscience of the one who told you. So you may do something this way here, this way here. Paul is saying, you're not being a hypocrite. You're taking into consideration the context, the people who you're around. I heard D.A. Carson speaking on this topic a number of years ago. D.A. Carson, theologian, uh, Canadian, but works out of uh, Ted's in Chicago. And he said in this session I was listening to that he's a teetotaler in North America, but he enjoys his wine when he goes to Europe. Because he said it's not an issue in Europe. And we know that. Have you ever traveled to Europe? Italy? They brush their teeth with wine in Italy. It's like, this is not an issue, right? So D.A. Carson joined a glass of wine in Italy. Nobody's going, to, uh, Dr. Carson. But go to Dallas? Preach at some conference there? So I'm a teetotaler here. I would also add that there is a difference. This is really important. We'll unpack this more next week. There's a difference between the weak and the lost and the legalist. Jesus dealt differently with the Pharisees. He got in their grill. Is it okay to heal on a Sabbath? You can wait. No, watch this. We'll talk again more about that next week. Last principle, going into a time of response. A proper, and I have this last one for a reason, a proper use of our Christian liberty models Christ. And what does Paul write about Christ in Romans 15, verses 1 to 3? I'll, I'll succinct it up or package it up like this. We ought not to please ourselves, for even Christ did not please himself. And I, I end here because there is something very beautifully simple about this. Because it reduces this big topic into the most basic questions of love for Jesus and through the Spirit becoming more like Jesus. Mid Midtown, you want to be more like Jesus? Then use your liberty in Christ to give up your rights in Christ. Use your liberty in Christ to give up your rights in Christ. That's the way of Christ. And therefore, as I close and we respond, there is no more appropriate way to do that than with the meal that remembers his death in our place. As I said, a meal that reminds us of Jesus' total loss of liberty for our sake. May we have the mind of Christ, for we have the mind of Christ. And to not merely look to our own interests, but also to the interests of others, because that's what love does. And not just for our wives. Amen? Amen. Amen. Would you rise as I pray and we respond? Uh, Father, as I've thought through this text this week, um, the, the, the one thing that is 
very evident to me, and I, I'm sure everybody else here, or at least many of them here, is that the only way, the only way uh, this is doable is by your work in us. Like, we have to have the mind of Christ if this is something we're going to pursue. We have to be people who love you, Jesus. We have to be people who want to be more like Jesus. We have to be people who love the gospel. We have to be people who love the weak. We have to be people who love the lost. So deepen that love. Pour your love out in our hearts so that all of these loves would increase. So it would be easy for us to go, yeah, I'll pass that up for your, yeah, love you. I'll give that up. I love you. This makes much of the gospel. I love you. This model's Jesus. I love Jesus, and I want you to love Jesus too. So help us, individually and corporately, to love like this. Like our Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to midtownchurch.com.